Hi everyone. I'm Pavan Gupta, co-founder and CEO of Fashionza. As an entrepreneur, you are essentially building a solution to a problem. Hopefully, a problem that has a large addressable market and a truly seasoned entrepreneur would be able to define the problem in a single simple sentence. Pavan Gupta is the founder of Fashionza, an apparel tech startup that has raised more than $100 million in debt and equity till date. He is a serial entrepreneur whose first venture in the health tech space got acquired. And the problem he's solving at Fashionza boils down to a single metric. He wants to reduce the time it takes to release a purchase order in the apparel and fashion space. This might seem like a trivial problem, but it's a problem that affects billions of dollars of revenue and can potentially lead to massive competitive and profitability advantages. And the key to winning against a fashion retailer like Sheen is to actually solve this problem and bring the num. Stay tuned for this insightful episode of the Founder Thesis Podcast and don't forget to subscribe to us on any audio streaming app for more such conversation with founders. Before we talk about the path which got you to where you are today, uh, help me understand, for a listener, why does Fashionza matter? Like, like, why should I care to know more about Fashionza? Absolutely. So Fashionza was one of the first B2B startups for promoting apparel manufacturing, making it easier. Today, we work with close to 100 global brands, including the likes of Inditex. And at the same time, we work with over 120 factories across India, Bangladesh, Turkey. So it's a big business now. And uh, we do over $100 million of business a year. Uh, I would say we were one of the first startups in B2B in India who actually started cross-border trade. Uh, and now we obviously have a flurry of them. So yeah, I mean, like we've been a pioneers at a lot of these things. Uh, yes, there were a couple of B2B startups before us, but I think Crossborder was new for us. Apparel was absolutely new that we started. I believe you've raised something like $110, $115 million just in the last two odd years. We've raised a lot of, lot of money. We, do, we don't say that we are just proud of the fact that we've raised a lot of money, but I think there's the kind of partners that we have on board, including the likes of Westbridge, Naspers, Axel, Elevation, EDQ. I think these are some of the best names out there, best people out there. So we're really proud of our cap table. Okay, amazing. I mean, arguably, like we like to say that we have the best cap table at our stage in the market. But again, that's always arguable. But Tell me about the path which brought you here. Now, you're a serial entrepreneur. What was the trigger to get into entrepreneurship? I think I don't really like the term serial entrepreneur. Even the first startup that we started, I didn't intend to sell it. And it's a long story. But the idea was always to build a company that lasts for generation. Uh, I also believe that as companies become more and more mature, as founders become more and more mature, that is when you start getting the real and the large impact. So it takes time to build a company. So anyways, I think, yes, uh, this is my second startup. Previously, we started back in 2014, two years out of college. I graduated from IIT in 2012, worked for a couple of years just to save up enough money to, to be able to leave my job and start up. What made you so sure that you wanted to start up? Was it the IIT Delhi ecosystem? I think like 2012, the IIT Delhi ecosystem was probably the best out there. But 
it still was not like entrepreneurship was never a mainstream thing. But somehow something comes from my upbringing. So, so I grew up in a very small town called Hisar. Either they have a government job or they have their own manufacturing or business. That's it. Like, so that is how we grew up and I think obviously your your upbringing shapes up a lot of things government jobs were considered safe reputation wise you were obviously reputed there was a great reputation in the market people respected you or you were a businessman obviously you had great respect but at the same time you were also rich so I always grew up assuming that businessmen are supposed to be rich Hence, if you wanted to become rich, again, all of us who grew middle class, lower middle class, always wanted to become rich. Like, we wanted to have those comforts of life. Was your dad in a government job? No, no so my dad was actually, interestingly, in a private job. <laughs> so my dad used to manage a plant, a factory. He didn't own it, but he used to manage it. So everybody would always think that my dad owns that factory because that is the natural thing to, to be. So... In any case, I think like I got into college, obviously big dreams. But uh, the thing was, key either, and so I wanted to have my own thing, as simple as that. And that is where I felt that I could do go big, go fast, and within a job environment, I would just be stuck with a natural progression of growth that you can achieve in a job. Uh, obviously, things have changed a lot since then. I think you can obviously join a startup and grow very fast as well. But those were the days when uh, from IIT consulting, finance, or some of the core tech jobs used to be the most important jobs, and which essentially gave you a good career. But I, I always felt that that would be very limiting for me, and hence I wanted to start up. So that is how I ended up. Within fourth year itself, the final year of the college, I decided that I wanted to start up and started planning around like what could be ideas, what could be the sectors, Fortunately, met a couple of my really close friends who, I mean, we've need, known, we knew each other for a very long time and ended up deciding that it's a great idea to just start up together. But again, we did not have any money. So we decided let's work for a couple of years. Let's keep our dream alive. Let's start building on the side. And then like when we have just about enough money to sustain ourselves for a year or 18 months without a job, that is when we'll go ahead and start up. The funding environment, honestly, at that time was not that strong, which meant that like we did not know how to raise funds. We did, were not confident of raising funds, but we were confident that what we wanted to build in healthcare would be extremely valuable. And hence, we just wanted to go for it. So that is how we left our job. How did the healthcare come as the, the idea you wanted to build in? Like, I, mean, I think when we decided that we wanted to build something, we thought that we would enjoy building somewhere where there would be a possibility of a big impact. Not just in terms of how big the company you can make, but at the same time, if you can really impact the lives of your uh, customers, of the people in general. And health turned out to be one thing we got excited. It obviously helped that one of our co-founders' parents were doctors. So we could get early insights from them. We could also get really good uh, feedback from them very quickly and get connected to the market. You had uh, Nipun uh, as your co-founder. Uh, co I've interviewed Nipun also in the past. Uh, Nipun was one of my co-founders. We were actually dom mates for almost four years. And then Mudit was the other co-founder. So uh, what was the idea that you wanted to build on? Tell me about that journey. 
So we started building in medical tourism. We were very interested about how medical tourists would come to India to get treatment. And especially from lower income countries where the facilities were not available, which was very insightful. I think we earlier used to think that it's only the people from US and UK who would come here because of the cheap cost of treatment. But eventually that turned out to be people from Afghanistan, Sudan, Iraq, but Bangladesh were coming here to get treatments. And we thought that maybe we can make their lives easier by getting them uh, really good treatment at good prices. So that is how we started building on it. Then one thing led to the other. This was like monetized through a, a margin from customer or through a margin from hospital? Margin from hospitals. They would give you like a referral fees for bringing them business. Pretty much, yeah. So that is that was the business model. We did that for almost like close to six months or so. But one thing led to the other. Mm. Yeah, were you making enough money for? Yeah, so this was for you to want to keep doing. Yeah, so money was not bad actually in this, and I think the customers also loved us. The doctors loved us. Uh, it is just that I think we kept on questioning why are we building a commission-led model or why are we building a middleman here, especially early young techies. We started thinking whether there is a technology solution here which means that we don't have to do any operations or anything. We just like are able to connect them together. And from there, they can take it. I mean, to be honest, it was not the right decision at that time. But uh, we also tried it out with uh, no real success. That is when we got an insight that one of the key things is actually, if you look at the domestic market, a doctor-to-doctor referral actually is big, especially from small town to big towns. And uh, we thought that, okay, let's forget international from, for now. Let's just focus on domestic. And in domestic, such a thing operates less on, let's say, a customer reaching out for a solution, but more on a doctor suggesting another doctor. And that is how, like, I think one thing led to the other, and we started building a doctor's network, more like a LinkedIn for doctors. And hence, Curify was born. I mean, why aren't you running Curify today? Because LinkedIn for Doctors as a business idea has merit. I, I believe there's a company in the US which went public a year or two back. I, I believe they had like a two-digit billion valuation kind of a thing. Yeah. I mean, there is merit in that idea. Oh, why aren't you running that idea today? What happened? Absolutely. I believe it's a great idea. Uh, and uh, Doximity is the name of the company that you're referring to. They do close to almost $400 billion of PRR. Beautiful business has raised less than $100 million, if I'm not wrong, to build that level of company. So when we, so we raised a seed around about a million and a half. And I think at that point of time, we got a strategic investor on board. How did you manage to raise? You were clueless about fundraise. Uh, how did you crack that problem? So we raised a very small angel round initially, uh, about close to $100,000 at that time, $150,000. That got us some really good angels on board. So all those angels came through some network of IT Delhi or network of from friends and family. And those were the people who were ex-entrepreneurs who had raised, built their own businesses like Rajul, uh, who now runs his own fund, Leo Capital, was the founder of Pine Labs and Global Logic, Alok Mittal, India uh, Koshina, etc. So all of these people came through one place or the other, again, with very small checks. We raised a very small round, but just the fact that those people were our sounding boards really helped us navigate the future ecosystem. Again, 
having said that it was india back in 2014 15 everybody was just investing in hyper local e-commerce places like that very few investors understood core technology plays let alone a vertical social network so it was not easy people would question us on tam people would question us on whether doctors even needed something like this except whether doctors would adopt technology so it was not easy and i think like that is by as part of the seed round we just slightly got frustrated and we got a strategic investor on board who understood healthcare market and most importantly they wanted to build an indian healthcare for a very long time and hence uh, we received money from them where we got a partner who understood healthcare this is which company which uh, came in as a strategic investor round glass partner okay but again like i mean obviously getting a strategic investor on board also comes with a flip side that eventually you can't run a company absolutely independently because they invested in the company assuming that they are a strategic investor or they have to go and acquire this company in the future or integrate that company within their own ecosystem which meant that we could not take independent calls on running the company or raising more funds and hence we reached a amicable solution wherein they acquired the company at an all cash deal uh, gave us a great exit and i we exited in so we sold them in what 2017 we stayed with them for two more years as part of the lock in and really getting the company transition great thing is the company is still running very well you know building a social network is uh, incredibly hard uh, you know how, how did you actually uh, get enough number of users to sign up in absolutely i think uh, and building a social network is probably one of the toughest things out there it is not the same as let's say any other operations based startup or even e-commerce to be honest uh because the value of social network only exists when you have a large portion of your tam on the platform until then it is just a promise because somebody else can just come up get a large number of users and just absolutely kill you hardcore winner takes all dynamics exist in this social networks so it did help that we were focused on a niche vertical rather than let's say something like a tiktok uh but so it did help we did not have a lot of competition we did not have five other startups trying to do the same thing yes when we once we started a couple of them more pivoted or came into our uh, thing but again uh, not too much of a competition honestly so we could build at our own pace we could really work with the users build out right solutions right features for them and take our own time which i would say was a great help for example for the first 12 months or so when we, from the time we started i think we had pretty much nothing i don't think even a thousand doctors were using the platform at that time but we went from 1000 to 100000 within a matter of 6 months we could take out that time to build out the right solution just those 100 to 1000 users which would be beneficial for the next 100000 users so uh, like you invested in product market fit first before investing in growth correct so we invested in two things i think one is product market fit obviously that was the key and second we also invested a lot in just building single person utility tools a social network will only give you meaning or value when a critical mass of people start using the platform especially if it is user generated content ugc 
this is what we defined as single person utility that i don't need you to be there on the platform i can just open the platform and get some value out of it for example in our case curify we just built a news platform very hardcore academic medical news what's happening combined with some medical jokes humor or some like uh, really relevant news articles like some violence against doctors and things like that now this was all curated by a content team sitting in house every day we would give you 10 pieces of great news so you could just come on the platform read the news even though there are five not thousand others users are not using it but still you are getting some value out of it so that's a good way to hack your initial set of growth you invested in content as a way to build early engagement until you reach that minimum viable level of network where ugc kicked in basically you hacked the ugc by first doing in house content generation uh, until the ugc came in absolutely correct amazing for this 1000 to 100000 journey did you uh, also spend on uh, like paid marketing to uh, like attract users or, or was it all like viral so we did do some paid marketing uh, but to be honest like i think paid marketing did not work very well for us it was very hard to really target doctors on a social network like facebook although we did tried a bunch of things there but i think most of it which worked was like something like some growth hacks for example we use gorilla sms marketing or we would do let's say paid marketing but very focused on so let's say for example a pediatric conference was going on in delhi so we would geofence the area to exact that hotel where that conference was going on assume that everyone there is a doctor and then do paid marketing and that resulted in very low cost but at the same time really high relevance mm. what do you mean by gorilla sms marketing so gorilla sms as in like when we would ask our doctors to invite other doctors as simple as that but then we would just like use sms as a tool for that invite let's say you are getting a message that hey dr akshay uh, dr pawan and dr neha are inviting you to join curify and those dr neha and dr uh, pawan are let's say in your contact book they are super relevant to you and suddenly you're like oh great okay you, you, those two people are inviting me then maybe it is something let's check it out right right which is similar to what linkedin does like it takes your contact it imports your contact uh, book and sends emails okay okay correct well, i'm just saying that some of these big things might feel intrusive at that point of time but we're talking about back in 2015 2016 when these this used to be the norm yeah, yeah. i mean email importing email contacts is still the norm i think anyone who signs up for linkedin linkedin kind of prompts them to do that uh, had you figured out uh, monetization by the time you got acquired so we had figured out monetization so i mean we were forced to figure out monetization because we were always like we didn't ever never risk crazy amounts of money we were very frugal and hence we started monetization just because we felt a need to boost our revenues we didn't want to rely to uh, everything on the funding and hence we started building a monetization layer on top of it using pharmaceutical companies medical devices companies to for using purify as a reach out platform which in earlier days or even today like they use mrs or their on ground representatives to do that reach out to the doctors and this is we positioned curify as a platform where they could reach out to those doctors in a very targeted manner like you could even target somebody like a pediatric oncologist 
which is probably like only 20 exist in India, give them absolutely relevant stuff. So more advertorials, less ads, less marketing, which is beneficial for both obviously the company, but at the same time, the doctor as well. That worked beautifully. I think like doctors loved it. Advertisers loved it. They were getting amazing reach. The MRs, when they were visiting those doctors, were saying that, oh, I have already read this content on Curify. Tell me something new. And I think like that just absolutely blew it. Like, I mean, honestly, before we got acquired, we could see that if we stayed at it for three, four more years, uh, this, we could easily build like a 10, 20 million dollar ARR business in the next three years. Yeah, because pharma marketing is a massive market, right? Billions of dollars globally. So that opportunity is there. Uh, Absolutely. And there's no platform for them to do it. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Why did you choose to get acquired? Uh, if you had monetization happening, like was your runway ending or like was it that Round Glass had such a big stake that you could not say no? So it's a combination of things. I think one is obviously just the fact that we had a strategic investor on board. So sooner or later, the option that was the thing that we would need to get acquired with them, uh, or be part of, or be integrated into their ecosystem. Just that I think we wanted to stay independent. But I think like uh, it was, we felt that I think after talking to our investors as well that a long term independent thing might not be feasible, and hence we started those discussions about acquisition. So that I would say was the major goal. Post we had figured out monetization, post we had figured out that engagement, uh, fundraising was not that big of a challenge. I think we were getting funds from elsewhere as well. I'm guessing uh, a lot of people would be scared to invest because you already had a strategic investor that might have also closed some doors for you. Interestingly, no. <laughs> I think even for future investment, I think people just wanted to see that okay like i mean just make sure that you guys are independently running the company okay so what were your learnings from curify before we come to how fashions are got started a few things and i tell you all the things that went well as well as some of the things that um, we learned and then did differently i think number one thing we realized that i think getting great people on board honestly a lot of times means just like getting really enthusiastic people on board, getting them young, and they can just surprise you if you give them autonomy. Obviously, the average age in fashion is much more than Curify. A couple of reasons, obviously, we were 23 when we started that. We were 20. I was 29. So that does play a part. And the second, obviously, because we've raised more money, we are able to afford more expensive and experienced people. But it is still much less than, let's say, people in the industry. It's still, I think the average age is still not above 28, 29, even though the average age in Curify was something like 23 or 24. But again, having said that, I think uh, just giving, getting young people on board, giving them autonomy and giving them resources, not unlimited, but very limited resources can really force them to find innovative solutions. For example, if we had a million dollars digital marketing budget, I'm pretty sure we would not be thinking of all these solutions of geofencing around conferences, doing Gorilla SMS marketing, etc. We would still be just doing what everyone else was doing, spring break. I think this is what happens when you raise a lot of money. So being resource constrained was obviously challenging, but at the same time, it drove amazing innovation. So I think that it was amazing learning 
Second important thing was just like taking your time in building out the company. I mean, companies take time to build. You can't hack your way to a billion dollar company in two years. If it was so easy to build a billion dollar company in two years in your industry, then either you will get disrupted that easily as well, or you just haven't figured out the product market fit. You have just become big. Amazing, amazing insights. Okay, uh, the the hiring and the culture piece that you discovered at Curify, like you know, did that lead to some principles that this is how you think about hiring now, and this is how you think about culture building? So it's slightly so Curify was honestly slightly easier because we were all very young people, and we were always resource constraints. So our hiring was very slow. But what we realized was that when our hiring was slow. and we were hiring people for their mission their potential and uh, less about their experience we were hiring people who were amazingly cultural fits we would just love each other's company i think we were at its peak 45 people in curify and those 45 people even today are good friends with each other like i think i still end up meeting curify people every week and so i think just hiring people who you love to enjoy and spend time with does amazing it does wonderful effects to your company because people want to spend more time on problem solving people love each other's company and hence they want to work with each other and they're also generally end up becoming more they feel that anything that they want to do becomes less of a risk because their friends are also doing this uh that kind of culture is invaluable and very hard to build at companies where the hiring goes very fast i think every single person at curify was hired by at least one of the founders uh becomes difficult as you scale up like at fashions i can't say the same but just the fact that we've hired the first 30 40 people completely ourselves and then those 30 40 people have gone ahead to hire the hire uh, people further you can't have the same level of camaraderie as let's say a 40 people company in a 200 people company but i would still say that i think the level of bonding that you find here would be amazing compared to anywhere else you would find at a similar scale and i think this is the feedback that we get from people here rather than it's just me telling you okay amazing amazing so let's talk about the fashions and journey so you uh, got acquired and then you spent two years in the business i'm sure during those two years you must have also been thinking about what next so you know tell me that journey of figuring out what you wanted to do next sure i think obviously some some time was taken out to just breathe and relax and get my head in order Purify was an exhilarating journey, so it did takes a long time to get out of that tussle mode and just be relaxed. But but at the same time, I think I also didn't want to relax too much and just wanted to go straight into the game again. For me, the most important part was less about idea, but more about finding the right person. I wanted to start with. I was certain that I didn't want to start alone. A lot of second-time entrepreneurs we've seen start up alone, uh, the single founder, and then go about building their own team. but i was very clear that it's a long journey i probably going to spend the next 10 15 years of my life on this so i didn't want to do it alone and uh, just wanted to have somebody i can trust as i would trust myself so so my i would say the 18 months journey from start starting thinking about starting up again to actually starting up again out of that 18 months i think about 12 to 15 months was spent just figuring out the right And I was sure that I didn't want to start up with something I haven't known for a long time. So 
my search was again narrowed down to a small group of people who wanted to start up and I have known for a long time. I mean, ultimately it landed with Abhishek uh, and Jamil. But the idea was that uh, for me, the idea matters less and more the co-founder matters more. Most figuring out the co-founder, narrowing it down, it was more about getting some idea where we had some edge where we were absolutely passionate about. We were not just doing it for money, but at least we were solving a large global problem. So not a small problem, not a local problem, but a large global problem so that the company could continue to grow for 20, 30, 40 years, no matter what. Obviously, there'll be more disruption, there'll be more innovation, technology, which will keep on coming in. But if your inspiration is large, if the market that you're playing in is large, and if the problem segment, problem that you're solving is absolutely massive, then you'll keep on changing yourself, reinventing yourselves to uh, continue to keep building. So again, it comes down to the same thing that I wanted to build a company which lasts for generations and not just uh, an opportunistic play. That was there. And I think like, again, if you remember my earlier point that what I knew big, uh, growing up was government jobs and manufacturing. And it was spending a lot of time at home post-acquisition and got really excited about how my friends, how my, I mean, my dad was still working in that plant. Uh, and how my all of my friends were manufacturing one thing or the other. Uh, and that engineering mindset kicked in and that it's just lovely to see stuff getting manufactured in factories. Right? Yeah. Is Hisar like a, a hub for textiles or fashion or something like that? Right? No, no, it's, it's not a fashion or textile hub, but it's a manufacturing hub. So people like Jindals come from Hisar. Uh, it's a very large manufacturing hub. But uh, it was never a textile or fashion hub. So so I wanted to do something in manufacturing. I was very excited about it. But wanted to pick up an industry where India had already an edge. And at the same time, the industry was also very dynamic. Abhishek comes from a more fashion e-commerce background. So before Curify, he was at uh, Lime Road and before that at Flipkart. So he had seen a bunch of fashion e-commerce. So that is how we started wondering about uh, manufacturing in the textile and apparel space. So that's how we ended up uh, with the idea that we could actually solve manufacturing in apparel. It's an amazing industry because of e-commerce, because of fast fashion, because of people like Shein. The industry was completely reinventing itself. So now imagine a trillion dollar fashion industry, a global industry, with supply chains having been created over hundreds of years, completely reinventing itself, forced by the consumer demand, forced by social media's ability to portray your fashion in real time. And now you have an, you have an opportunity of a lifetime. Like the entire trillion dollars of supply chains are going to get reorganized and then you put in... China plus one, you put in industries moving out of China due to labor wage. Then COVID came in, which meant that our supply chains need to be further reorganized. And we just found an amazing opportunity to go out there, build amazing solutions, which people would love to be a part of. I think uh, essentially like uh, the fast fashion trend uh, is like what was driving this change in the supply chain, right? Like uh, you could no longer talk about 
your line which you will release after 6 months on a fashion show but if someone saw something on tiktok they would want to buy it the next day so that whole fast fashion movement meant that the supply chain had to get compressed to deliver things faster and so that was the opportunity which you saw absolutely and i think more obviously that was getting created but i think what we also really believed is that this is also a better way of running a business we saw people or brands just like building up inventory for the entire 6 months 12 months in advance betting on the trend that is going to be there in that season and what people were realizing that half of their inventory was not really it shouldn't have been made so either they were selling it at discount or it was not selling and they were just putting it at clearance sales or just like liquidating stuff i mean from from a first principle perspective if we could not build up that inventory if we could just be closer to the season if we could just react instead of uh, forecast uh, we could solve most of these things i mean uh, why would you want to build something about uh, 30% of which is just going in clearance or liquidation okay. so january 2020 you started fashionza what was the idea like did you want to do a chain model where you're directly selling to consumers or, or like what was the plan there like so i think our plan was very simple i think we wanted to make manufacturing easy agile and quick and we started by making the manufacturing easy as simple as that now by easy we meant that okay let's just say it's an online platform you can get uh, place your orders easily you can find factories you can track your entire production because it's a long lead time thing and at least just not be con- continuously worrying about where the next shipment is going to come from so we said that okay let's just take this at once this you're saying for the buyer uh, correct like somebody who's buying uh, from factories uh, you built a platform for them to uh, like allow the information to flow real time uh, i mean honestly like we wanted so we were the ones ensuring manufacturing so it was not just a technology platform we were a full stack solution from day one so we wanted to build that uh, commerce module from day one itself so initially we were just a commerce platform where you could get your products manufactured so just making that easy and transparent how did you crack your first account the first buyer yeah so we cracked the first accounts i mean majorly through our network and i think uh, we knew a bunch of people who were running their own brands uh, people like sold store fabadi etc and i mean we knew them for some time so the the d2c fashion brands the d2c fashion brands most of these brands were also very interested in just like i mean going there and uh, being very so they didn't want to solve manufacturing let's say their idea was that they wanted to solve for customer they were solving the the branding correct exactly like uh, what was your proposition to them like they could upload the design uh, and then you would get it manufactured like how do you receive an order absolutely uh, yeah, and in general like in the fashion world how does one receive an order See, today i mean if i don't what talk about how the industry works it's a lot of phone calls lot of emails lot of visits physical visits when you do all the sampling for months and months you do the look and feel test you would say like, okay i want to have this some sort of like floral print shirt here is the photograph of what i want can you do something and send me some let's say samples 
So again, all these things we take, we send you in. People would be like, oh, this is not, uh, this is slightly hard. Can you make it softer? So it's a lot of trial and error. And hence, it ends up taking a lot of months for anything to get sorted. You're saying getting the purchase order itself is like a task of a couple of months. Oh, easily. More than that. Wow. Okay. In the offline industry, I think it takes about six months to get a purchase order. Okay. And, and so tell me what you did. So we started slightly, slightly different. So we said that, okay, let's, we already have a set supply chain. But we have, since we have almost, I mean, when we started, we had probably 15, 20 factories on board here. We'll figure out the exact things that these factories can do. And your deal with the factory was that you dedicate some of your line to me, like some part of your manufacturing capacity will be dedicated to me, like something like that. So we consciously onboarded those factories who already had that spare capacity available due to underutilization. So we did not have to make any commitments to them. It is just an additional business that we were bringing to them. So now because the lines were available, our idea was that let's understand what these factories are really capable of. So these factories, let's say, for example, if I'm talking about a t-shirt with sold store. Now, we only get a factory which has done something like this in the very similar product, very similar price point, similar quality level, similar brands. So we essentially turned that trial and error problem into a data problem. So the first thing that we cracked was just matching. So let's get a large network of factories so that we can match the exact requirement with somebody who has the experience of working in that in the past. So that reduces the scope for errors by a lot. Okay. Uh, did you solve this matching by having like ready to order products listed, like creating a catalog? Like, was that the way you did it? Like you created a catalog and then, no, it, it was still custom made. No, so, so we were never a catalog company. It was everything was always custom made because we were working with brands. But I think the idea was like uh, understanding what the factory has done in the past to, to get more data on them. That was the entire idea. But how did this help you cut the time, like that six-month time to get a PO, a purchase order? Yeah, I think what it does is that, let's say when if somebody like the sold store comes to us and says, okay, I want to get these 20 designs manufactured and these are the kind of t-shirts that we want, these are the kind of fabrics, etc., then we exactly know that this factory has done this fabric in the past and they have done similar prints in the past. So that means that we just need to tell them, okay, this uh, the fabric that you have to use is, let's say, the fabric A that you used in that previous order and the type of print that you need to do is a print that you did on the order number five in the past, which means that the factories are not... So that entire point of just like look and feel, touching stuff, etc. becomes very quick. So now when you receive a fabric as a brand, you suddenly say, oh, okay, this is the exact fabric that we wanted. Okay. So uh, what you're saying is that the prototyping problem uh, exists because if you go to, as a buyer, if you go to one factory, that factory may or may not understand what you need in the first go. But as a buyer, if you come to a platform, that platform will have access to multiple fa factories and then choose the factory which can create the right prototype in the first attempt itself. So therefore, that multiple iterations of prototyping get cut down. The first prototype itself Absolutely. ends up getting approved by the client. Absolutely. Okay. That becomes a critical thing. Yeah. So pro once the prototype is logged, then the job becomes half of the job is done. Right, absolutely. Because then you're clear. I mean, then you can document exactly what is needed. This fabric, this is what, and you know, you can uh, measure stuff like 
whatever there must be some yarn count and stuff like that for that and so so everything can then be like computer readable which can allow you for better quality control at a later date and yeah i think what we realized in manufacturing and i mean elon musk tweets a lot about this is that manufacturing is a lot of art and is a lot of experience as techies and software developers we are programmed to think on variables and their values but the reality is that in manufacturing it, the number of variables that can impact your production is absolutely like for example yes your yarn uh, thread count and your uh, quality or the construction of the fabric could, could all be same but let's say if they are manufactured in different mills which are situated in different cities of the country and hence the temperatures are different their flexibility might vary i mean you can't program it in your computers and hence i think like manufacturing is tough and hence it comes with a lot of experience so that is why you would see so many jvs entering in manufacturing wherein somebody comes with an experience of manufacturing that product in the past and this is something that took us some time to really appreciate and understand coming from more software background but uh, i mean this was very exciting like when we understood this and hence we started valuing the experience these factories had of manufacturing and hence i said that okay if somebody has manufactured the same product in the past at least they can replicate the same product because they would know where to source the raw material from what to order to that mill that so that they deliver the same thing which printing unit they need to go and tell them what to get the same print done because most of it is not about variables most of it is just about reducing the number of variables by going doing the same thing again okay okay fascinating uh, can you give me examples of some some mistakes you must have made in those early orders you must have screwed up some of the orders and what you learned from them and how that helped you find product market fit oh yeah i think the initial mistake that we did was just assuming that if i have given the exact variables then i should get the same product for example if i am giving the order for a 100 gram under gsm 100% cotton uh, t-shirt then I, i there's no reason i'm not getting the same product that i wanted when we started understanding there are five more variables there's a yarn count there's a construction type then we started understanding okay which mill is also important then there's a vf fabric there's some other fabric all of these things started uh, becoming important uh, and the last thing was just like if somebody has been manufacturing a 100 rupees t-shirt and suddenly if you give them the order for 500 rupees t-shirt they can't switch their mindset overnight the quality control requirement for 100 rupees versus a 500 rupees t-shirt is very different so you can't change the factories overnight so you have to play on their experience okay amazing uh, when did you feel that you have reached some sort of product market fit you know like say in curify you spent almost a year with just 1000 users uh, until you were satisfied and then you pressed the pedal on growth uh, tell me about like what would be like a comparable journey here so in our case i think uh, so it was slightly different from how we ran curify uh obviously a lot of this was due to to do with because we started in january 2020 and suddenly covid hit so we were pretty much a remote company for a very long time almost all of our hiring was done remotely we set up the team remotely we set up supply chains remotely so that was tough but, but i'm guessing during 
lockdown uh, even manufacturing would have shut down right like no so that was interesting i think they did shut down for the lo- lockdown period but uh, then they opened up very quickly first to manufacture pps and masks which we did in huge numbers yeah and then uh, obviously the government realized that you can't shut manufacturing down there's a huge employment at stake and these guys can't do their work from home so the manufacturing opened much quickly compared to other industries and at the same time e-commerce boom so everybody was purchasing stuff online uh, there was a lot of revenge shopping <laughs> Okay, so so uh, uh, this actually like worked out perfectly for you. Like I, I'm assuming that initial downtime would have helped you build up your systems, processes, hire the right folks, so that when the 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 boom came after that downtime, you were prepared for it. Yeah. So I think that is how we started preparing for all of these things. But more importantly, I think it also meant that we were forced to build the company in a very different manner than we were used to. We were for. Uh, used to running a company like a family sitting in the same room running the business like a family's stuff i think like that moved to zoom and which is just not the same thing interestingly i think that is one of the reasons we were one of the first companies to completely move back to work from office after the lockdowns go to god over but uh, but that is the thing and i think we were also inundated with huge demand because everybody was struggling to find a supply chain that worked during those times so we scaled up really quickly during 2020 and early 21 absolutely very very quickly and that did mean that multiple things broke that did mean that we were not ready to handle that level of volume obviously it was very exciting that we got so much demand which we never expected to get so early on obviously the money and the funding also followed but uh, that did mean that we just did not get time to breathe so 2022 when the things started going down honestly i was very happy i was really happy that now we have time to breathe nobody is questioning us on growth nobody expects us to grow and we can just take our time and really focus on building the right solutions even if that meant that we were sacrificing the growth for a few months Uh, this scale up which you saw was it human driven like say if you are running pure saas product scale up means you maybe deploy more cloud capacity or whatever and you know so so that scale up is of a different nature in, in this kind of scale up this sounds like a very operationally heavy business uh, help me understand what kind of people were you hiring to handle the scale up what, what does your org chart look like like do you have a lot of on ground people who are going visiting factories or me understand that like how, the how does the business run Yeah. So yeah, absolutely. I think so. We have uh, obviously there's a central team, people, our account managers, our sales teams, our technology teams, etc., etc., design teams. Uh, but then we have a large field force on the ground whose job is to go and manage the factories, uh, oversee the quality there, oversee the production, daily production there. Uh, so it is not like we are running the factories there. It is also a lot of it is just monitoring. uh some of it is just like the the typical operation stuff for pushing the people on the ground getting stuff out getting stuff done doing some problem solving and the third key, key part is getting our product adoption there at the factory so that we can increasingly rely less on uh, human power and increase the efficiency by using technology as a monitoring uh, tool for both the quality as well as the production so those are broadly the three types of people Three types of teams that we have on the ground, and yes, I think, like you said, so scaling up for us means that we have to 
obviously set up people on the ground, train them well, train them according to what we require in our ways of doing work, which is very different from how typical industry would work. Uh, uh, train them on. So these are like what? Are these like textile engineers uh, or are these like production guys? Or Correct. Textile engineers. Yeah, so textile engineers who have been in production for a long time, who have been handling quality production for a long time on the shop floors. So these are really experienced people. Okay, okay. Right, because that, like you said, manufacturing is 80% art, so you need experience there too. Absolutely, you need experience there. Right. But then, I mean, like a lot of these people are also involved in product adoption on the ground with the factories, with the people inside the factories. So our idea is that uh, we don't want to be an operationally heavy company. And in, honestly, like in our case, with similar comparables, either in the legacy industry or the new age, our level of operations are much smaller than theirs. Just because we have a strong focus on technology from day one. Like our, uh, our factory base would have doubled while at the same time, our team has pretty much remained the same. Okay. Um- whom do you include in your comparable set? Especially takes a single name and say that, but I would say that on an average, we are a much leaner or short. Okay. How did you do this? Like, can you give me some examples of the how you productized the operations so that you need less people? Like you doubled factories without increasing your headcount. How did you do that? There are three parts to their jobs. So one is monitoring, whether it is quality, what is happening in the factory, etc., Second is uh, communication, coordination with the factories. And the third is problem solving. Now, what we feel is that the first two jobs does not really require somebody to be there. It is a data problem. Right. Yeah. The first is like, if we can get data from the shop floor on what is happening in the factory, what is the quality level, et cetera, we can take the actions and initiate the actions accordingly. So just we don't need somebody to just go there and get the data. And second, on the coordination part, like if we just want somebody to be there in the middle and act like a postman, just because they are on the ground, it is not a good use of their talent and their time. So now these two are our key focus areas on solving them first by using technology. Then the third part of real problem solving, wherein custom cases arise, but what we saw was that in the industry and even with us, when the technology was not there, only 20% of their time was actually spent on the third and 80% of the time was spent on the first two. Okay. Mm-hmm. How did technology solve this? Uh, like, did you use computer vision and put cameras or like, give me some examples of what all you've done here. I mean, honestly, those are also smaller parts of it today. But I think the initial thing was just creating a, I should say a very small SaaS-like solution, an ERP-like solution, which can be easily used by the workers there on the shop floor. So the idea is that like make it so easy, make the UX and UI so easy that people just are able to use it. And then we build solutions so that the factories are not just using it for us. The factories are actually using it to improve their own operations and their own PNL. For example, if we reduce wastage in the factory by let's say getting trying to get the quality right in the first go. It is a direct impact on the bottom line of the factory. Yes, we are able to get that visibility, but factory is able to solve for its wastage. Now, getting those factory that selling that dream to them that this is what it is going to help them 
is how we initially got the initial adoption. Again, I'm probably making it sound a lot easier than it actually is. It does require a lot of effort on the ground. But uh, our mindset from day one has been very clear that we are doing this to help the factories and not just to help ourselves. Right. The, the behavior change would have taken a lot of effort, like getting them into the behavior of documenting, taking a photo from a mobile app and updating numbers and things like that. Correct. It does take effort and you have to sell them the vision. If someone produces 1000 t-shirts and then they get a feedback from the customer about some quality issue, in your case, maybe after the 100 t-shirt only, you're able to tell them that this is not right. And so instead of wasting 1000 pieces, only those 100 pieces are wasted. Something like that would be like one of the benefits. Pretty much like I think we're getting real-time data on what is going wrong in the quality. And just because you're getting real-time data, you can take real-time action. Mm. So you have like cameras installed on the lines that allow you to do real-time quality controls. I mean, so that is there in a very small setup. But I think like like I said, the idea was just like use a very simple SaaS solution, not going to fancy solution. So whatever that quality control person was doing earlier, Let's just ask them to do the same stuff, but on a screen instead of a paper. Right. So that it can become a centralized function then instead of having one quality control in each. Amazing. Amazing. And that also gives you more data to train your algorithms. You can eventually have more quality control done through algorithms because you're able to train it with that data because you're doing it centrally. Okay. You know, tell me about your, like the demand side of the journey. Initially, you had these D2C brands, uh, which you had signed up with. How did you scale on the demand side? So a D2C brands, I think like, uh, so we initially thought that we'll build a great solution for small to mid-sized D2C brands. As we started getting more inbounds from the larger customers, we started understanding that, okay, I mean, it might be a great solution for them as well. When we started working with them, we realized that uh, it was pretty much a great fit. The larger customers also wanted great solutions. So one of the use cases for them was just being able to work with smaller factories because smaller factories can be more agile, while the large factories are not agile. They are built for a lean methodology. Mm. What does that mean, lean methodology? Uh, For example, if you're manufacturing iPhones, now, it's the same SKU which is getting manufactured in millions and millions of pieces. What you need there is the high quality standards. What you need there is com- consistency. And you need predictability that your factory will be able to produce, let's say, a million pieces per month. So that is when it makes a lot of sense to go and work with large factories. And now, for example, in our case, if I'm wearing this... Which doesn't work in fashion. Absolutely. It only works for certain things like, for example, this black, sh- black shirt. Oh, this ratchet is going to sell in huge numbers for uh, years to come. Yeah, it's predictable, right? It's predictable. But increasingly, as the world becomes more fashion-oriented, as world becomes people become more comfortable wearing quirky stuff, that is when you start entering into a world where you cannot predict for a long time, and hence you need to experiment a lot. Hence, you need maybe a thousand T-shirts to try it out, try out the design. And that design might become obsolete two months down the line. So your large factory format just does not work for that. And this is exactly what Shane is also doing, right? Like taking small factories and aggregating them, uh, giving them designs uh, and using data it has on consumers to decide what to produce and uh, like producing small lots. And if they work, then ramping them up quickly. Absolutely. Get it. That is what Shane is doing. 
so your like entry into the enterprise segment happened organically like through inbound leads and all correct so that's how we started working on that and eventually we realized that i mean it's a great fit we enjoy working with them because a lot of our solutions are also custom built for customers and with larger customer it does make sense that we are able to spend that time and effort in building out those custom solutions and they also stick with us for a long time so that is now the 90% of our business obviously we still dream to build a, for the long tail but i think that is going to take us some more time to really work on that long tail Mm-hmm. For the long tail, I'm guessing you would need to have a more self-service approach, uh, like this ops-heavy uh, account manager showing you prototype. That kind of approach won't work for the long tail. That is tough. Yeah, that is tough. How do you envisage that to happen? I think like nobody has really figured it out. My sense is that either you end up becoming a more catalog-led thing, where you create, show your designs, and people select. Let's say. more of a wholesale model i would say or you go and find very small factories which are just able to let's say do those very small uh, quantities for you to be honest i don't think we have really figured out the custom manufacturing part of it let's say you have a design in mind and you want to get it manufactured but because you are a small player you only want to do 50 pieces now how do you do it so print on demand your t-shirt has been there for a very long time but that also runs when where the basic t-shirt is already there and you just print on top of it now how do we extend that to other more custom products is an unsolved problem we have some insights on how to solve it but i don't think that so i think a lot of manufacturing technology also needs to evolve to be able to achieve that maybe you will reach a stage where you'll have let's say 50000 skus that you have worked on and those 50000 skus then are compelling enough for self service something like that maybe maybe that yes but i think this is what requires a lot of skill before you can build a uh, build a business on top of it uh, so how many uh, skus do you currently handle like for example right now we would be handling almost close to 5000 skus wow okay and uh, lifetime how many skus have you created we have created more than 25000 skus okay so you already have a fairly big catalog i would not say that we have a big catalog because all of these designs are owned by the brands and notters which is producing them so that's not our catalog uh, i wanted to ask you this you said you have a design team so why do you need a design team sure so what we have seen is that a designer at tarin can hang, can do two things for a day for a brand first is because the requirement for the number of designs has increased many folds in the past few years just because of fast fashion just because of uh, the customers requiring more trendy designs and hence like for to get designers in house who can de- do design from scratch is something that is becoming troublesome so our designers what they can do two things for you so one is they can look at let's say the designs which are there in the catalogs tweak them a bit look at the fabrics that are there in the stock and design on top of it so that you can design very wide very quickly and second you can incorporate the manufacturing requirements into the design from day one itself so whether the design is feasible or not whether the cost that we have we are targeting would be achieved in this design or not and hence like that becomes key thing wherein the execution and the manufacturing becomes uh, linked to the design process 
So uh, this again solves that purchase order problem. Like if you have in-house designers, the time needed to get a purchase order is reduced further because they can do faster prototyping and it can get manufactured very quickly because the designers have kept in mind about the manufacturing capabilities that are available in the system and so on. Yeah, absolutely. And I think like this is where we see that because the designers are not part of it uh, and we are the ones doing the design, then we already know like who will manufacture it, what is the fabric going to be. We also have CAD patterns of the construction of the garments. Because all of these things are already in place, then effectively, like, uh, I mean, we're not doing that entire trial and error of uh, getting uh, that design out to five factories and then asking them, uh, seeing who can do the best sample. How much of your purchase order process is currently productized? Like, for example, could your system throw up the price given some inputs of, like, I want this t-shirt, then could your system generate the price for it automatically or does it still need human intervention? Or Sure. So there are multiple parts to doing that uh, pricing. So those multiple parts are like, say, for example, how much fabric is going to be consumed? What is the price of the fabric? How much time it would take to for a worker to manufacture that garment, etc. And then where it is going to be manufactured. So there are multiple parts to it. So it is a scientific process, but you need to have data on each of the parts. Now, the more you use technology to build that garment, the better data you can get. For example, we start by making a CAD. Now, because we start by making a CAD, we already can calculate the consumption of the fabric that is going to go in it. A, a CAD is like a 3D model of the loads. But, yeah, it's a 3D or it could be a 2D as well. But essentially, it knows that what piece of cloth is going where. So multiple things like this essentially enable us to calculate the value of a garment. Now, as we also get more data, as we get more experience of execution, we are also able to get better quality of that data for any new product that comes in. Our systems guess becomes better and better. So now we are in a state that in multiple categories, not all, we are able to easily identify the right price. So that pricing also does not take a lot of to and fro. Even though right now we have not completely automated it, but let's say if the earlier process was actually creating a garment, then seeing how much consumption would be there, how much time it takes, and then giving a code which ended up taking four or five days, we can get done it around in let's say 24 hours wherein we have a system throwing up some numbers, somebody checking it as well, and then confirming it to the customer. Yeah, amazing. Okay. Uh, what are the problems that you're currently trying to solve? Uh, does the purchase order problem remain the biggest problem you're still trying to solve further or what are they like? It is definitely a problem. It will take its own sweet time. And like, for example, so current process to get a sample, if it takes anywhere from three to six months for others, it probably takes like two to four weeks for us, maybe six for a complicated stuff. And the idea is like, we want to get it down to three days like or two days. We are able to do two days even for some parts, some products today, but not everything. So the amount of uh, improvement that one needs to do is just absolutely humongous. Like this is not going to happen in a year or two. This is probably going to be a continuous effort for five years wherein we keep on reducing that. Mm. Because this is uh, dependent on how much data you're able to generate. So if there is some category, like say a t-shirt where you have a lot of data, so there you could do it in a few days. But if there's category where you don't have so much data, there it takes longer. Mm. Okay, fascinating. Tell me about your margins. So our margins are slightly blended because it's not a direct take rate business. 
we incur some cost and then we sell the product so it is not just a pure marketplace in the sense that something sells on the platform and we take a 20% commission or 10% commission so our costs also get distributed in multiple places for example we might be procuring the fabric for five orders together and then let's say distributing those fabric to five different orders we get some skip benefit there so it's a more of a gross margin business than let's say a ticket business but let's say today our gross margin would be somewhere around like uh, close to early double digits interesting so it's not like you are just giving an order to a factory but you are actually involved in the procurement of the raw materials for that and you're paying the factory for the labor basically uh, and that is generally the case or it's blended like in some cases you pay for product in some cases you pay for labor you're right i mean by labor i mean the service yeah correct so there are multiple parts there so one could be like you said we just give the entire order to a factory and they do everything but in some cases we procure the raw material they do the labor or the service i mean at the end of the day because we are responsible for delivering the goods to the customer we figure out what is the best path to take but what's the ratio between paying for product versus paying for service so almost close to 30% of our business is where we pay for the service and we pay for the material separately and 70% where we pay everything upfront i'm assuming pay for service would give you better margins obviously it does i mean because you can control raw material costs because you can buy in bulk get better prices and all those economies of scale are factories happy with getting paid for service does it make sense for them also i mean to be honest yes so not all factories so it depends on what kind of a factory it is because getting a raw material buying a raw material also involves working capital so for factories which are cash rich they love it they want to do the procurement themselves because then they can make their own margins and put their capital to use also increase their revenues and hence increase their balance sheets and pnl statements but for factories which do not have capital and they would much rather do the service part rather than get involved in uh, raw material procurement mm-hmm. interesting do you see a fintech angle in this as well i mean think b2b and uh, finance goes hand in hand you can't build a b2b company without credit becoming yeah absolutely working capital is like the correct uh now personally we are not a credit company and hence we are not the best at it so we work with multiple uh, nbfcs banks etc for all of this but at the end of the day because we are controlling the supply chain we are able to provide them great data on who the eventual customer is where the cash flow is uh and where the factory's execution capability is so as an nbfc or as a financing partner instead of taking exposure on a small factory which is always risky you are effectively now indirectly funding the eventual buyer which could be let's say more credit worthy somebody like uh, aditya birla now because fashion is also part of that cash flow it like it becomes much more risk free uh, for the financing provider so there is a great financing fintech angle there we have not truly explored it but i think like uh, these kind of uh, supply chain solutions will eventually incorporate some of it into their own ecosystem uh, do you want to monetize this fintech angle or do you just want this as a value added for your factory partners i mean i think like if we 
even today what we see is that yes the idea to always begin anything internally is also adding value to our partners or our customers but eventually if the value is there uh, we figure out a way to monetize that i wanted to understand if you think you could eventually become a shane you have the back end of shane already thing is that your margins are early double digits and your customers margins would again be maybe 20 30% or 40% something like that if you're instead of selling to your customers you go directly to the end customer it would double your margins easily or am i being very naivety of an outsider kind of a thought process so two parts to that question i think i'll start with the first one so a brand ends up taking a taking risks which eventually in turns into greater rewards for them and the biggest of them being the inventory risk they are taking a risk on whether the trend is actually going to happen or not and if the trend is going to happen great the inventory sells if the trend is not happening the inventory does not sell so while at fashion lab we do not take that level of risk for us it everything is contract based we don't deal with uh, returns like b2c companies do okay we are not investing in marketing like these companies do yes i agree if you build a great company on the great brand there are rewards to be had there but then you also end up taking a lot more risk which justifies those rewards so it's a different dna and to service every b2c company there has to be a b2b company so that's first on the dna and the risk part and i think like i have great respect for anybody running a brand because it's not an easy business in itself so that's one and i think second whether we will do it or not and comparing ourselves to chain yes we do have a great supply chain like chain but i think chain obviously started with a great supply chain that was a differentiation but now chain sells because they have a great connect with the customer and uh, they have a great data on the customer they have great content platform content strategy which the uh, for example they do so much investment on content on tiktok they have that level of intelligence and learnings there so for us to go, go and compete with sheen is not just about the supply chain it is going to be about the content which again this is not our dna or this is not what we were uh, needs to do so it's going to be a very different level of learning and very different level of execution that would be required from us to compete with them okay interesting the amount of money that you've raised you know uh, more than 100 million dollars in the last two years somewhere the investors must be comparing you with shane right uh, that would have driven some amount of interest in this or or is there uh, another reason for that i think the bigger thing is that people have seen the success of shane and what people including me realize that the world is going to move towards that direction so currently probably sheen is 20 times ahead of any, anyone else now to bridge that yeah people would at least need to be let's say 5x behind sheen because 20 times is just like too big of a gap to even survive in the future so that is where people believe that the industry is going to reorganize uh whether slowly or fast or anything but people will be forced to reinvent themselves in the next 10 years Uh, interesting so if shane is like uh, the amazon then you're like the shopify in the sense that you are arming the other brands to compete more effectively with the shane correct 
Okay, fascinating. Okay, so uh, my last question to you, you know, uh, what's your uh, advice to founders, you, you know, in terms of things to avoid, pitfalls to avoid, or things that they must get right, or, you know, uh, whatever advice you'd like to share to aspiring founders? I mean, these days, I think the biggest advice that I give to multiple founders is just be patient. It takes time to build a big company. Don't get influenced by the amount of funding that people raised or how big they become so quickly. Nothing beats product market fit. Very, very, very few industries have a winner-takes-all mode. I mean, it's much less than what we assume it to be. And if that is the case, I think the one who spends time listening to their customers, building out the right solutions, is the one who will succeed in the long term. I think like my thing is, if you are building a great monetization layer, for example, for a social network, just be enabling monetization early on. And if it is something like a commerce platform, just being unit economics positive. I think that can really help you increase your lifetime. And personally, I don't believe any smart founder who keeps on building for at least five years will build a less than a successful outcome. Amazing. Okay. Cool. As a B2B founder, uh, you would have, uh, I mean, your last venture was a B2C kind of a venture for social network. Now you're doing a B2B uh, venture. You must have learned some basics of B2B, like building B2B businesses. What are the things you must uh, do? What are the metrics to track? So uh, can you uh, help our audience understand that? Sure. I think one thing I really appreciated transitioning from a B2C founder to a B2B founder was finance, respecting the finance a lot more, especially when it comes to B2B companies. So any B2B company is not just about selling technology. It is also about selling uh, goods. It is about uh, managing your working capitals, managing your capital allocation, uh, your cost of funding, etc. And all of that truth only exists in your PNL statement, your balance sheets, your cash flows. Now, I mean, for example, if because credit is involved, you might be invoicing a million dollars, but uh, are you even getting that million dollars in the bank? How soon are you getting that? Who is keeping a tab on it? And till the time you are not getting it, uh, how are you financing your operations? What is the cost of funding? Because all of these things are going to be extremely crucial for the profitability of your company. Now, we are on low-margin businesses. Uh, we're not an 80% gross-margin business like a SaaS. So every penny counts to the point that, okay, how much is the travel going to cost for us in the, in the next month and how much as a percentage it is of the revenues that we are making and can we even afford that? So every single cost head counts and for that, you need to respect from day one, uh, respect finance from day one itself. I understand that most of the founders do not come from finance background. They might not understand the intricacies of working capital, the rotation, the inventory turnover, et cetera, et cetera. So maybe like it makes sense to invest a lot more in getting a great finance team on board from the initial days itself and then keeping the tab on all of these things. I mean, to be honest, like cash flow in a B2B companies matters much more than what is your top line number? Okay. 
Yeah. What about say a, a go-to market for a B two B business? So good point, actually. And I know uh, to be very honest, I don't think anybody has really figured out the best go-to market, especially when it comes to more startup approach. It's my nascent industry. Uh, people are experimenting with multiple go-to markets. For example, getting industry people on board who have already gone and sold the same product in the past. People are also experimenting with digital marketing or using content as a hook for. Uh, onboarding B2B customers. Uh, I think, honestly, nobody has the right answer. So, and it also depends a lot more, a uh, lot on the industry as well. So, a chemicals might not have the same go-to-market as a textile. Somebody doing the go-to-market in India might not have the same go-to-market in the US. So, the answer, I don't think there's a one-size-fits-all. What worked for us was a beautiful combination of doing content marketing as well as Getting people who with similar sales experience in the past, and I think that has worked very beautifully for us. But that might be the case, absolutely. How did content work for you? Like you're saying, like say the buyer of a Inditex goes on fashion blogs, and you also have a fashion blog or something. Like how, how did you make content work? Absolutely. So our target market, like our content marketing strategy, is all about educating people. It is all about adding value to their lives, and it may or may not directly talk about fashions or supply chain or anything. So, a lot of content marketing, especially in such a big such businesses, is about building out a brand that we understand this, that we are there to help you. Right, like what Curify was doing for pharma companies. Uh... Oh, absolutely, very good example. Mm. Interesting. Okay, what percentage of your customers are outside India? Like, what's the mix domestic and export? So, about close to half of our business comes from outside India now. Yeah, anything else you think I I missed asking? No, I think uh, this really some uh, complete set. And that brings us to the end of this conversation. I want to ask you for a favor now. Did you like listening to this show? I'd love to hear your feedback about it. Do you have your own startup ideas? I'd love to hear them. Do you have questions for any of the guests that you heard about in this show? I'd love to get your questions and pass them on to the guests. Write to me at ad at thepodium dot in. That's ad at t h e p o d i u m dot in.